Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hello, Steve. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm all right. Why are we hearing your voice instead of Rebecca's today? (laughs) (laughs) We are hearing my voice, I suppose, because uh, this is an area of special interest to me. This podcast will be discussing Rick Sorensen, who is a resident of Anoka, uh, who enlisted in the United States Marine Corps shortly after the start of World War II. And in the course of his first action in 1944, he was very badly wounded and uh, ended up uh, receiving the Medal of Honor for his act of heroism in which he received that wound. So um, as a Marine Corps Reserve veteran myself and someone very interested in military history, I thought it would be really nice to be able to intro this segment. So glad to uh, to be able to join you today. The Medal of Honor is the highest medal that anybody can receive, correct? Yep, the Medal of Honor has a history in the United States military going back to the Civil War. It um, has traditionally been awarded for people who show extraordinary heroism in combat in the face of the enemy. It's um, frequently, uh, frankly, it's frequently awarded to people posthumously. In other words, they uh, frequently die in the course of doing whatever it is they do that gets them awarded the medal. So Rick is fairly rare. He, um, in the course of a battle for a small island in the Pacific, he and a number of other Marines were taking shelter in a shell hole and a grenade rolled into that hole and Rick jumped on it, saving the lives of everyone in the hole. Um, Obviously that was a pretty severe wound, but he was one of very few men who have done that in the course of Uh, World War II anyway, and survived the experience. So Rick was fortunate to survive that experience, even though he spent months recovering from it and undergoing many surgeries and medical interventions to help him uh, get up and walk again. So, uh, but he lived a a long and happy life after that and a productive life. So um, he's one of three Anoka County residents that have received the Medal of Honor, and he was the only one that survived. Yep, that's my understanding. And um, as far as I am aware, he is one of four United States Marines who received the Medal of Honor in the Pacific Theater for jumping on a grenade who survived the experience. There were a number of medals awarded for that action, which obviously requires Mm -hmm. uh, a great deal of personal heroism and a sense of sacrifice and, and a desire to save the lives of others. Most of the people who do that don't survive it. And Rick was Uh, very fortunate in that. I really wanted to have this conversation come out now on this episode particularly because it coincides with him receiving his medal on June 19th, 1944. So just a few days before this episode comes out. Uh, It's a a bigger conversation the interview is from. Uh, The official interviewer was John Weaver, Uh, acting in his role as the president of the Anoka County Historical Society at the time. And then it's a conversation with John and also Robert W. Johnson and Rick Sorensen. I had to 
edit the conversation down a little bit because it's longer. So Robert Johnson's pieces are mostly taken out. You hear his voice just a little bit during the interview. Uh, shall we get into it? I think that would be a fascinating conversation to listen to. Perfect. Just a little trigger warning, though. There are conversations uh, and discussion about war, violence, injury, but also some misophonia. For those of you who dislike that, they needed a couple glasses of water on the table. What an honor it is to be here with you, Ricky Sorensen, and on this occasion that's brought us together by history. And the reason is obvious. You're local and national hero. And we want to talk about a little bit of background. Uh, you both have been born in the area. Uh, you've gone on to great things in your lives, and we want to have the people out there know more about those wonderful things. Rick, you were born right here in Anoka. Right, Gates' Hospital. And where was Gates' that Hospital? That was on Ferry, you know, Ferry Street. A converted home. Well, uh, yeah, it, uh, they, uh, he, I think he had two, uh, two rooms for patients and an operating room, and that was about it. Hmm. But uh, that's, that's when Ferry Street... I was Street. not only born there, but I had my tonsils removed there. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you both went on through the, through the elementary schools and came to Anoka High School. At that time, Anoka High School is in what is now the Sandberg Building, grades right. 7 through 12. Um, and Rick, you were in what year when things got really hot in World War II? Well, I was in a junior um, the year I enlisted in 42. And uh, I decided to go down and enlist. I just turned 18 and I thought, well, I'm going to. You weren't alone. Get in. Yeah, there was a group of us that went down. I was the only one that entered the Marine Corps. Why? Um, well, I, I <laughs> felt that uh, the war might be over, you know, before I got into action, and the quickest way to get into action was join the Marine Corps. <laughs> and I wasn't wrong about that. <laughs> and you could pass the physical. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I passed the physical. You, uh, it was a tough one. You couldn't have a cavity in your mouth. Or you had to be in good physical condition. But, uh, so you, you and your... A group of Anoka students were, who well, were in what grade at the time? Well, they're, they're both juniors and seniors. And you were all 18? Mm -hmm. Were you all 18? Yeah. Had to be. Yeah. Well, you couldn't, if you, were, if you weren't 18, if you were 17, say, you, you had to have your parents' permission, mm -hmm. and written permission. Mm -hmm. And I went down on December 8, 1941. I was going to go in the Navy. My dad had been in the Navy in World War One, but he wouldn't sign the papers. He said, no way will I. This was the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, yeah. and you went down to enlist, and you were... Yeah, the Federal Bill of Minneapolis, and the line must have been five blocks long. Oh, it, for goodness it was sake. Just, Interesting. And it took me almost till afternoon to get up there and get inside and get an application. I mean, it seemed like the whole town was enlisting, you know. But there's a lot of people, uh, and even when I went down a year later, uh, there was it was jammed down there with mm. yeah, young men trying to get in the service. Mm. It was a different different era. Everybody 
Seem want to get in and do their job. So you enlisted. Uh, how long did it take for you to, your papers to be processed and you actually were on the train for the West Coast? Well, I enlisted in October, but I didn't get sworn in until December. And uh, because there was so many to process. And, uh, and then we, I was uh, called in on January 3rd of 43 and a ship that day. Do you remember any of the other uh, enlistees from Anoka that went down with you? And... No, I can't recall who they were. I know there was a group of us. and I, I think Harold Blair was one of them, but he was lost at sea. Um, there were 25 of us that left Minneapolis uh, on January 3rd hmm. and headed for San Diego for boot camp. So you... And we picked up another 30 in Kansas City, from Chicago and other surrounding areas. Were these all Marine enlistees? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you went to San Diego. You were 18 years old. You were put into the mix and became a Marine ready to go. Well, yeah, it was seven weeks of boot camp. Uh, and then uh, I put 30 days of mess duty on main side there. And after that, it was transferred up to Camp Pendleton. And uh, I was assigned to M Company, which is a weapons company, 3rd Battalion, 20, uh, and it was the 3rd separate battalion. Later became the 3rd Battalion of the 24th Marines um, and part of the 4th Marine Division. 24th Marines was one of the regiments. They had three regiments in the division. Okay, forgive me, I'm not a geographer. Marine Corps had six divisions, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Although the 5th uh, and the 6th Divisions weren't organized until after uh, the Marshall Island invasion. But uh, uh, the 1st Division was down, Canal. 2nd Division was down there in Ontario. And, and then the 4th Division was assigned to take Marshall Islands. And I think the 3rd Division went in uh, to Guam. Mm -hmm. uh, but all the divisions saw action during World War II in various, they would, uh, or whatever, you go in on an operation and, uh, <clears throat> and take a number of islands, you know, and then you'd return to an advanced base where you brought in your replacements and so forth and got ready for the next one. In the meantime, the other divisions were involved in landings. Hmm. So that uh, all of them saw action. Talk about replacements. We were always looking forward to getting the 18-year-olds in mm -hmm. because they didn't know the difference between life and death. I mean, you order them to go, they'd go. But you take somebody who had been in combat, why, you'd, you'd say go, why they'd say, well, now, wait a minute, maybe there's another way to do it. <laughs> They're much wiser. Much wiser. <laughs> You've been shot at. <laughs> you gain a little knowledge, you know. <laughs> well, why you know didn't you go when you went out and... and uh, the first time, where did you? Did we, you... we combat loaded. We were the first oh, division that left the states and went directly into combat. Oh, wow. Uh, we were. Did you drill, uh, train, then on board oh, ship? Yeah. Well, what we did is we formed in at Pendleton there, and we received our division colors in, in August, August 16th. And then we went on ship to shore landings off San Clemente yeah. Island and off the California okay. coast. We were on about five or six of those operations, and then 
physical fitness aboard ship, I'm sure, sure every oh, day. Oh, yeah. Every day, every morning after breakfast, you eat at 5 in the morning. And you get out and do exercise for a half an hour. Then they send us down the hole and we belt an ammunition every day. Hmm. Because we're a machine gun platoon and uh, assigned to an infantry company. But uh, we would take these web belts and we'd belt ammunition with a little machine we would put in the ammunition. Uh, so that, uh, and then that you went what? into boxes, 250 rounds to a box, and that's what you carried ashore with you. So you went directly from there into combat, mm -hmm. to landing. Yeah, we were the first division also to take pre-war Japanese territory, mm. and the first division to, uh, to take a major uh, objective uh, in the shortest period of time. We, uh, we took the Marshall Islands, or took Roy and Namur in 24 hours, and uh, they thought it would take a lot longer than that. But uh, the way the Marine Corps operates, you know, they, you, uh, they have assault teams, and you, you hit the beach, and you just keep going as an assault unit and try not to allow the enemy to, to get set, you know, and get organized. You fight as boat teams because you don't have a chance to organize a company or a platoon under fire, you know, when you're on the beach. And that's the way we, we move. That's, that difference, by the way, when, you were, when we were, had some Army troops on Saipan yeah. really caused us a lot of trouble because the Army has a different approach combat-wise. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, they relieved the Army commander on Saipan. Right. They, uh, we hit the north end of Kwajalein Atoll, what they called Roy and Namor. And the army landed on the island of Kwajalein, which was south of there. Uh, and there was the same number of enemy in both areas. But we took our objective in 24 hours, and the army took theirs in four days. But their method was they would shell it, and then the troops would move so far, and when they run in resistance, they'd start shelling again, and they'd hold them up. We didn't do that. Uh, we received support fire before we were going, when we were going into the beach, and once we landed, we didn't get any artillery support fire. We just moved out and moved ahead. And uh, sometimes your, both your flanks would be exposed because the units on your right or left probably had run into uh, stiff resistance. And in uh, one, one phase there, the, uh, they came across a blockhouse and they threw a couple of satchel charges up against a blue hole in it. And then they came up and threw another charge in. Well, before they did that, there was a lot of Japanese ran out the other end. And we didn't know it, but the, the blockhouse was filled with torpedo warheads and aerial bombs, and it, it covered the whole land. When it went up, concrete was even thrown onto the ships out in the lagoon. <laughs> and we had suffered casualties, yeah. Wow. We lost several hundred men right around that. It was tremendous. The whole island turned black. And I just happened to dive into a 16-inch shell hole, another fellow and I. And we were on the side where the explosion took place. It's about 100 yards from us. If we'd been on the other side, we'd been buried in concrete chunks and blood like that. Hmm. Just amazing. But, uh, oh, it was... It, a cloud went up, black cloud, it looked like a nuclear explosion. 
they have pictures of it. It was really something. When the whole island shook, we thought it was sinking. <laughs> it was after that then that you were... Well, it was the next day I was hit. Yeah, we, we uh, had advanced uh, up to what they called Sycamore, but you couldn't tell what Sycamore was because of all of the uh, shell holes and the palm trees down all over and all the destruction, but there was great places for them to hide the enemy. But we had moved beyond there, and then our regimental commander uh, gave the word to pull back. We didn't get the word. We were about 100 yards further up ahead of our own unit. <laughs> we didn't get the word like the 10 percent, you know. <laughs> and the next, uh, that night, why they are, the Navy threw up shell fire, shell stars, and they illuminated the whole island to keep the Japanese from attacking but uh, and sneaking into the positions. But then the next morning, all hell broke loose. That's when we, we got hit. Uh, we were just about a platoon. We got hit with a company-sized unit. And, um, and then we started to receive fire not only from the enemy, but from our own troops behind us that didn't know we were up there. So it got a little hot for a while. Or, uh, <laughs> and that's when your foxhole... Well, yeah, that's when a grenade come, come in. And I, we had one light machine gun. Our heavy had been knocked out the day before. And, um, of course, we were trying to defend ourselves against the Japanese enemy. Uh, they knew we were there, but our own troops didn't know we were there. Mm. And, uh, well, it was kind of a bonsai attack, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, yeah. And they were all around us. We felt like Custer, you know, where did all these Indians come from? <laughs> But uh, and when they finally, our troops finally broke through, there was out of the, about 35 of us that had been up there, 18 were wounded. Hmm. And we had one corpsman. Boy, he was busy. He found you. Oh, yeah, we were all pretty much in an area about the size of this, this room because we had, we had pulled back to, to defend ourselves as best we could in a... And we were just a pocket of resistance. You were evacuated, obviously, from the scene. Yeah, but and not for an hour or so. His hmm. uh, comrade actually saved my life because he tore. He uh, tied off a couple arteries. I was bleeding really bad, and I. Uh, and um, if he hadn't have done that, I would have bled to death. So. But, uh, were, you conscious? were you conscious through all that? Off and on. Uh, I was conscious after the grenade went off, and I crawled back into a, another hole, depression there. Uh, and I had three grenades on me, and I took those off and gave them to friends. <laughs> My rifle, the whole stock, lower stock was gone. Just oh. up. Okay. And, um, Probably saved your life. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I was conscious, then they, <clears throat> I was so thirsty and I hadn't drank any water. And then when I started to lose blood, you know how thirsty you get. And I kept asking for water and this karma would only take a piece of gauze and he'd wet it and put it on my lips, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm going to die of thirst before I ever die of wounds. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, uh, and then they finally uh, came through with a stretcher while as they were hauling me out. One of the stretcher bears got hit by a sniper. Hmm. And they dropped me and I rolled out. Well, they put me back in another fellow from my squad grabbed a hold of it and they hauled me down to the beach. And, and they put me aboard a Higgins boat and took me out to the, the transport out there. And they, they hooked onto the four handles of the litter and they hoist you up, you know, by, um, in the air and then swing you aboard ship. And, and I don't remember much after that for about three or four days. Hmm. Then back to the, which, which base well, were you? We sat in the lagoon for about 12 days there. And uh, I remember uh, on the night of the 11th day, I think it was, uh, I heard all this, uh, these explosions, heavy explosions. What had happened is the Japanese bombers, there was uh, 12 of them, 12 Bettys, came out of Ponape, swung around, came, they came in low, went up over the island, dropped their load, and then off they went. They didn't even get a shot fired at them. Hmm. But they hit an awful lot of stuff on the island. They did cause some casualties. But I heard all this, these bombs going off, and I thought, oh boy, they sink us here in the lagoon. You know, I can't move. And we had about 18 Marines there laying in the sick bay, all wounded. But they never hit any of the ships. They just hit the island and, uh, and went right on back to Ponape, I guess. <laughs> you know, something then we. We landed in uh, Hawaii on the 21st of February, and I was placed in the, the hospital. They called Base 8 Naval Hospital. They were just Quonset huts. And I was there oh, about five, six months. And they transferred me to Seattle Naval Hospital. And, and I was there for several months, and they gave me uh, convalescent leave to come home here, and that's when I came home. After I was decorated, I was decorated in the hospital hmm. by the commanding general of Pacific, General Fagan. And um, with the Marine Corps at my door every morning at 7.30 to take me someplace or other, you know, to make a talk or something so that I, uh, finally after 30 days, I sent a wire to come to that Marine Corps and asked for 15 days because I hadn't had any convalescent at all. <laughs> and he granted me additional 15 days. And we went up to the Canadian border up there to lodge and I didn't have, I wasn't bothered by the Corps anymore. <laughs> and then when I returned, I was on recruiting, but then they put me on the 7th War Bond Drive and I was off again. That date again of your encounter that resulted in your Injury was what date? Well, it was uh, February 2nd is when I was hit, but we landed on the 1st of, of February, 1944. Mm -hmm. There was a funny incident. Uh, when I was laying in the hospital there, they'd, I was in a wheelchair, and they put me out on the little porch they had in this Quonset hut, and I was sitting there and looking over in the bay because uh, they had a row of 11 LSTs that were laying up there. And all of a sudden, they start to explode. Uh, do you remember that, where they no, were going up? Man, and uh, somebody dropped some ammunition or something, but most of them went up in smoke. 
and it delayed the operation a month. This was in May. Hmm. And, uh, but I never saw anything on the paper about it. Of course, they held back those sort of things. Oh, sure. Days. Oh, sure. Well, then some years later, Rick, you continued on active duty for a number of years and became a recruiting... Well, I, I joined the reserves in 1947 at the request of a Marine Corps captain in recruiting there. He led me to believe that they needed my, my talents, you know, to train Marines and machine guns. But they never even took them out of the Cosmoline, out of the boxes or anything. And uh, so I left the organized and went into what they call the inactive reserve. Well, in 1950, after the North Koreans had crossed over in June 20 and June 25th into South Korea, um, shortly thereafter, MacArthur asked the Commandant of the Marine Corps for some help. <laughs> and uh, so all 80,000 reservist Marines are called active duty. And uh, we had just broken ground uh, on our house, my wife and I, on the, on the 1st of June. And I was doing my own contracting, so it left me in kind of, and I knew I was gonna have to go. So they, they called me back to active duty. There was all 80,000 of us uh, organized, and most of them inactive, and a good portion of them were World War II Marines that they had talked into joining the reserves because there'd be another war, you know, and uh, you can make this extra money by attending these reserve sessions one weekend by a the month. And in those days, you, you could use it for your extra dollars, you know. <laughs> uh. <laughs> they tried to talk me out of joining the reserves too, but I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> you were smart. <laughs> so well, it, it's, uh, that set us back a little ways because I went from making 5,000 a year to less than 1,000 a year. 78 bucks a month as a sergeant. And, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty tough when you take a salary drop like that. <laughs> this was prior to the Korean War. This was the Korean War. It was at the time yeah. of the What year? 1950. Okay. Yeah. And so... Uh, and they sent me down to, at the end of one year, they sent me down to Great Lakes and said I had a calcified lesion in my left apex and they wanted to make sure I didn't have TB, but they locked me up in the TB ward. And the only way I got out of it, I said, well, I want to re-enlist. And right away, the next day, I was on my way back to Minneapolis and I <laughs> re-enlisted for another four years. And uh, then uh, about a year later, I. Well, I had moved up to Master Sergeant by that time, and then I was commissioned for Master Sergeant. Went through Quantico, and I, in 55, I decided that I would leave the Corps, go back to civilian life. My time was up, and I, <laughs> I had enough by that time, that peacetime service. Rick, you, during your ensuing years, you've met, I uh, understand, every president of the United States since President Eisenhower. You've been all over the world representing the United States of America and the Marine Corps. You've had some wow. exciting, exciting experiences as a Congressional Medal of Honor winner, one of few. Uh, how many are there remaining from those years? I believe now of all the wars and all branch services, uh, there's 167 or 157 
Living Medal of Honor recipients. But I haven't met all the presidents. I met Eisenhower and I met Kennedy, I met Johnson. Um, I never met uh, Carter. I met Clinton, um, Reagan, and Reagan and Bush. And Bush. Uh, we have a a society, Congressional Medal of Honor Society, and we used to meet every other year, but now we're meeting every year because uh, we're losing members so fast. Eventually, if there's no more wars, there'll be no more Medal of Honors given out. You've just come back from the Marshall Islands, celebrating the 55th anniversary of that yeah. experience that was yours mm -hmm. in those islands. Yeah. Are those areas now historically preserved? It's a historical battle battleground on Kwajalein, uh, where uh, <coughs> most of the action took place in taking the marshals. Yeah, to the blockhouses and pillboxes, uh, many of them are still there. And uh, the Japanese had air raid shelters that were like a, a loaf of bread. They were round, you know, but they went deep down as far as they could. And uh, they were very thick and all reinforced. And so you couldn't see them in the undergrowth or anything. And a lot of those were never touched by artillery shells or mm. naval gunfire. So, naval gunfire would ricochet off. Right. And, when they lifted the shell fire, as we were about 200 yards off the beach, that gave the Japanese time, you know, to come out and get organized. Because when we looked from the ship at the island that morning, you know, and it was just a mass of smoke and flames and everything and all the shell fire, and they said there wouldn't be anybody left to resist. Well, that's not quite true. <laughs> they come out of holes and everything else. <laughs> And it doesn't do as much damage as they think that it does. Rick, you're, you're, uh, you have family that lives in the area. You come back to this area every once in a while. Things have changed a little. I used to come back every year, and now it's about every other year or so. But I always enjoy coming back here. Well, it's my hometown, you know. I was born and raised here, and I, I feel very close to Anoka. Well, we have that wonderful Rick Sorensen Park commemorating oh. your your accomplishments and your feats of heroism, and we're thrilled that you could find time in your schedule. And I know, I know how busy your schedule is on this visit, but we're thrilled that you've been able to be here with us. Anything, any other uh, thoughts that you'd like to share with with the people who are watching this before we uh, go about? Our well, I went, daily tasks. I drove around, you know, to the old neighborhood, and I saw that, and then I saw the old swimming pool or hole down there in the Mississippi where we all used to go swimming. And of course, I remember the days before they had the the uh, building up there where they changed <laughs> the clothes. Where on the north side the men would change their clothes, and on the south side the women changed theirs in the in the willow, willows there. <laughs> yeah, those. But uh, that was the place everybody'd meet down there. You know, that's where you went swimming. That was the old swimming hole yeah. in the Mississippi River. And they River. had one up uh, on North Ferry, uh, just across from the hospital. And uh, they had a diving board up there and everything. I remember we used to go up there and swim every once in a while. 
we didn't realize that a lot of the sewage from the state hospital went just in above that, you know. <laughs> well, this has really been fun. Anything you want to add before we no, I can't take off? Anything. Rick, thank you. Oh, just you're most absolutely welcome. marvelous. And thank you. Thank you both. God bless you both. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. This is Diana Norberg, an adult services librarian for Anoka County Library, and this is your Library Minute. The following are library resources related to Medal of Honor recipients. Let's get started. First we have Against All Odds, A True Story of Ultimate Courage and Survival in World War II by Alex Kershaw. Though the Medal of Honor is the greatest award a soldier could receive, its cost to body, mind, and spirit is very high. Receiving high praise for having to willfully sacrifice so much is an enigma and struggle that military service members uniquely know. Alex Kershaw's account of four World War II veterans' experience highlights this conundrum. Next we have Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor winners of World War II by Robert Child. Even though over a million African Americans served in World War II, None had been awarded the Medal of Honor until more than four decades later. This book outlines the story of how seven black men courageously served their country only to be racially discriminated against. Unfortunately, when the awarding of the medals finally took place, all but one of the men had passed away. Finally, we have Heroism Begins With Her, inspiring stories of bold, brave, and gutsy women in the U.S. military by Winifred Conkling. Only one woman has ever been awarded the Medal of Honor, and that is Dr. Mary Edwards Walker for the medical services she provided during the Civil War. Read more about her story, as well as the stories of other trailblazing women from the military, in this juvenile nonfiction book. To check out these and other resources, contact your local Anoka County Library. Until next time, happy learning! Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. Never know how to transition out of these things. I'm so grateful that the three of those gentlemen were able to sit down and have a conversation, but I always want to know more and ask more questions. And Rick Swanson and John Weaver died in 2004. And R.W. Johnson passed away in 2010. So unfortunately, these recorded voices are the memories that we have left at the museum. But you have a connection to Rick Sorensen yourself, don't you? Yeah, in addition to my own, um, not anywhere near heroic military service. Um, interestingly, my son, my second son went to school at a small college in Idaho. And um, he, he met a, with some other young men at one point and that as one does, you know, they were exchanging names and hometowns. And he said, I'm from this little town up north of Minneapolis in Minnesota. Probably you've never heard of it. And one of the young men said, wouldn't be Anoka, would it? Charles, of course, was completely dumbfounded, you know, because unless you're a real Halloween fan, you've never heard of Anoka, Minnesota, right? Right. So he said, well, as a matter of fact, it is. How do you know about Anoka? And the young man said, well, my grandfather is from there. He received the Medal of Honor in World War II. And it turned out that it was Rick Sorensen's grandson. Um, real coincidence, I mean, small world, uh, that this young man should be going to the same small college in Idaho that my son was. 
Uh, Rick did have five children. He, he survived the war, married, um, had five children and a number of grandchildren, one of whom apparently ran into my kid. Um, so quite a, quite a connection. Of course, my son said, oh, my dad knows all about your grandfather, which is a, an exaggeration, obviously, but uh, we are proud to claim Rick Sorensen as our own here in Anoka. And uh, that was a fascinating conversation, and I'm glad that we were able to preserve it and to share it with everybody via the podcast. Local history expands beyond the county so many times. <laughs> it, it does. And um, I think one of the nicest things about our being able to preserve these little things, these recordings and so on and so forth, is that we oftentimes read about heroes. We read about what they did. We read about some of the statements and words that they left behind. And I think it does all of us good to understand that people like that um, are people like us, people who lived in the same place we live in, walk the same streets that we walked, see the same things that we see, and uh, that their descendants are still around. So um, I think it helps make them a little more human to us. I love it. Thank you so much for hanging out and ch chatting with me. And we'll bring you back for another episode sometime. It's always a pleasure, Sarah. Anytime you like. Ooh. If you want to listen to the entire conversation, uh, it runs about 57 minutes. Robert W. Johnson talks a little bit more about his time in service and enlisting. Uh, and it is available for people and subscribers on our vault on the website. Thanks for hanging out with us and we'll see everybody next time. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future. <laughs>